From WFSU Public Media, welcome to Perspectives. I'm Tom Flanagan. Our program, in keeping with safety considerations, is a pre-recorded conversation via Zoom. It was recorded on Tuesday, January 25th for on-air playback Thursday, January 27th. Well, as we speak at this very moment, the Florida Department of Health has released new estimates for the number of new COVID infections statewide. And for the week of January 14th through January 20th, that number, according to DOH, was just over 289,000. In comparison, just to kind of put it in a larger context, the total population of Tallahassee, Florida, is pegged at around 198,000. So it significantly exceeds that figure. However, that is a bit of a reduction from previous weeks, and so that's that's certainly good news. But what are our medical professionals seeing in our area, and what's the, the current level of response that we also have? And is it really adequate to mitigate the virus? Well, that's just some of the things we're going to be talking about on today's Perspectives, and we have some great folks to, to run that by. First, let's say hi to uh, Emily Pritchard on the research faculty at the Florida State University College of Medicine. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. How's, how's everything over at the College of Medicine? Thank you for having me, Tom. Um, it's been busy here, but we're doing well. Glad good, to be here. Good. Wonderful. Well, we couldn't have a discussion without also including kind of the uh, the hotbed of testing and other COVID-related protocols, which is right over across town at uh, Florida A&M University. And that is where Tanya Tatum, FAMU's Health Center Director, is kind of in charge of all things COVID to a very, very large degree. And uh, Tanya, I can't wait to find out what's uh, going on over at FAM because you folks have been right in the front lines of this whole thing since the pandemic started can you believe, nearly two years ago. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Tom, for inviting me. And um, we are, I'm very glad to be here with you. And uh, yes, COVID has certainly taken a priority for us over the last two years, and we're going into year three. It seems amazing that you have been able to continually maintain a presence, a very significant presence to help people get tested throughout this whole situation. Just amassing the resources that's required to do that had to be an incredible challenge. Give give us a little bit of a background on just how the, the FAMU testing center over there at Bragg got its, its start and how it's been able to continue for so long. Um, well, we started very early on. I think we opened up in April of 2020, um, but it was a partnership. Um, we certainly haven't been on this journey by ourselves, um, working with the Department of Health, uh, the Florida Division of Emergency Management, and um, with Florida National Guard, and several of our community partners, Bond Community Health Center for one, um, we really pulled together um, uh, uh, resources and support from a lot of areas in the community because at the very beginning, testing was the only um, thing that we had that we could offer the community. Um, we didn't have any treatment modalities at that point in time, so testing was absolutely critical to identify individuals with COVID-19. And the university just made a commitment that we would try to make sure that we had testing available. We wanted to make sure it was accessible to individuals um, in underserved areas and that we eliminated some of the barriers to care. Such as when we first started, you needed to have a physician's note or a prescription in order to get tested or you had to be symptomatic. And there were just a number of things that for some individuals proved to be obstacles. So. We tried to eliminate all of that and just offer testing for anybody that needed to be tested. Can you give us like a guesstimate of how many clients, let's put it that way, have been through <laughs> either the testing uh, protocol there or the um, the other services provided at the, uh, the drive-through clinic at Bragg since you guys got started nearly, uh, nearly two years ago? It has to be a, an incredible number. Um, we're looking at 596,000 um, over that number. 
um, we're we're edging up to six hundred thousand. So that's an incredible amount of individuals have been tested, and we have vaccinated over twenty four hundred people, twenty four thousand people. I'm sorry, twenty four thousand. Oh my gosh! Yes. just since since that started. That is amazing. We want to get some more information on that. And again, what uh, might be in the future for all of us from you, Tanya, in, uh, in just a moment. But first, let's bring uh, Emily Pritchard from Florida State University's College of Medicine into the discussion here. Emily, what's it been like at the College of Medicine since this whole thing began? And what role does the College of Medicine play in our area's COVID response? Well, we play a lot of different roles and I'm, I'm one small part of that. And I'll echo what Tanya said that you know, we're here to serve the FSU community and the greater Tallahassee community. And there's a lot of different ways that we do that. Um, we do offer testing for our campus and for community members as well and have served over 93,000 <laughs> tests. Well, the other thing that we do here is we, we, we give out vaccines and um, I'm also, I run uh, contact tracing for campus, which is very involved for our classrooms and our faculty. And right now, I think that one of the big things, it this was true in the beginning, and it is still true here um, two and a half, almost three years later, that getting to the right information at the right time is really important. Um, and that's why I'm really happy to be talking with you today because um, you know things are changing all the time and we have had multiple different variants and trying to make sense out of it. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest roles that we play is being able to say, here's what's going on right now. Um, and here's what you can do right now um, to protect yourself or to respond um, and to be able to do that with confidence, at least as much confidence as science can give us right now. You have hit on something that perhaps, and you would know this better than probably most folks, has been an impediment to getting the information out is that the older and perhaps less accurate information remains in the pipeline as we see it through social media and mass media and other venues that what we knew two and a half or three years ago may not be operative right now. What was true at the beginning of the pandemic is not necessarily the way things are today. And you hear people say, well, you told us this, and now you're telling us that, so what can we believe? How do you overcome that natural human reluctance to say, well, gosh, you know, things change and we have to go with the latest uh, and greatest that we know now? Well, there are two things that are changing, right? There's our understanding, which is always expanding, right? But we also have a virus that is changing. And so being able to respond and understand those differences um, helps us really, I, I like to look at um, different things like we, we say, well, hey, we know seatbelts are good. Well, guess what? A lap belt might not be enough. We need to have a shoulder belt. Um, there's different pieces here that can help us protect ourselves better um, when we are able to understand better. So really, I think that as the scientific community is doing so much to understand the research, it's important for us to communicate that with um, the rest of the community. And um, right now, uh, I'm so thankful for what uh, Tanya is doing at, at FAMU and what our Department of Health is doing. And um, FSU is one piece of that mix as well to make sure that um, our campus community understands um, our role and also how we are you know, influencing the greater community. Tanya Tatum, that brings up a really good point, too, that uh, Elaine Bryan, former Tallahassee City Commissioner, who also has been very much involved in the local COVID response and outreach and education, has brought up multiple times is that you have a lot of folks who, again, are just very reluctant because of historical reasons, you know, very legitimately, but also just the natural human aversion to sharp objects uh, that makes it very difficult, particularly in some parts of our community, to get the word out that, my gosh, yes, uh, vaccines are very important and testing and mask wearing. All of those protocols will help get this thing under control. So you've got to be on the front line of education as well as everything else, right? That's right. Um, I We started early, early on with just uh, making sure we were passing out face masks when we were doing the testing. Um, and that was a piece that... Um, one of our faculty members, Dr. Uh, Cynthia Harris, insisted on, and we're like, okay, the testing's important, but she's like, no, the face mask and the information, have, the education has to be a part of that. And so that was a very critical piece of what we've done. 
Um, we've had a number of faculty work with um, on a number of grant projects on vaccine hesitancy. And it really worked to try to do a better job of promoting the vaccines in the community. And also they've trained um, community health um, workers to give more information about the vaccine. Because um, we're, we're fighting not only um, historical fears and concerns, but also just plain misinformation that people are getting right now. Um, I still hear from individuals that are concerned about um, reproductive issues. Um, and that's the reason why they don't get the COVID vaccine. And I just, you know, what I'd really try to get them to understand is that the risk of getting COVID far, far exceed any perceived risk of taking the vaccine. And um, it can't be a one-time conversation. I found that out. <laughs> it has to be repeated messages. Um, and taking the time to really hear what their concerns are and, and being able to listen and to be empathetic, but then also to provide them with that other factual information. Then sometimes, you know, we, we, we're getting them, but not, not, we still have some holdouts. <laughs> so, but that's something that I think is going to, going forward, um, if we really, really want to get COVID-19 under control, um, it's going to be absolutely critical that we get more individuals vaccinated. So that's that's just a huge challenge for all of us that are dealing in the public health realm. Well, with the greater problem that we have with transmission with the Omicron variant, heretofore with the, the Delta and the original um, COVID version, if you will, a lot of folks knew nobody who had COVID, but mm -hmm. Omicron seems to be a lot more transmissible. And even people who were able to avoid the first variants seem to be coming down with Omicron really, really uh, fast right now. Does that change minds? If you have someone in your family or a friend of your personal acquaintance that comes down with this and you think, oh, my gosh, this is real. Um, I think it's, it's, um, it certainly brings it home and that it, it is something that needs to be dealt with and addressed. And I think it um, makes something twice about it. Unfortunately, I don't know that it has been a huge factor in getting people to rethink taking the vaccine. Um, in some respects, one of the fortunate aspects of Omicron is that it has not been as lethal. Um, as Delta or some of the previous variants. Um, and um, so it's not taken quite as seriously. Um, and then it's too bad because the reality is, is we haven't had the time to do the science necessary to really truly understand the impact of uh, COVID-19. Um, we're going to be finding out more and more I mean, of how it impacts and affects the body in the years to come. I don't think I've ever seen a virus that affects so many different organ systems. Um, this one does, and we don't know what those long-term impacts are. So, you know, I really, you know, I'm grateful and glad when people don't have a very serious case of it. But um, to me, that's not a reason not to go get vaccinated. It's like, okay, next time might not be so great. So make sure we go ahead and still consider that vaccination. Sure. Emily Pritchard, what's, what's the status at Florida State University? Same kind of considerations that Tanya's talking about over at uh, Florida A&M? Yes. And I think that um, it's people come at this from a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives. And it's really important to meet them where they are. Um, you know, my office um, here at the SAFER team, we, we, when someone has a positive result, we, we meet them where they are and take them through to the next step. And um, I do think that that's an, an acute a point in time where there's an intervention needed and, and we can be there. Um, but I, I really like what Tanya's saying about this, um, this broader perspective that um, we, we see here in the science that the risk of the vaccine is so much lower than the risk of having COVID and having this, you know, affect so many different areas of the body, 
um, and we don't know for how long, and it affects many people very, very differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that the scientific community is still working to understand. And um, we have now at this point in time quite a bit of data um, on a lot of elements, and um, we can see that there's going to be so much more to uncover. So we know, you know, initially that you're, you're less likely to be infected with COVID-19 if you're vaccinated. You're also less likely to have a severe case. And so I like to um, use an analogy like the seatbelts, right? You know, if you say, hey, buckle your seatbelt, you're less likely to be thrown from the car and die. Does that mean you won't be hurt in a crash? No, a seatbelt doesn't prevent car crashes. A vaccine, you know, you might still have an infection, but if you're safer um, during that infection, if it's milder and you're less likely to be hospitalized, and as, as Tanya said, less lethal, um, you know, we're working in the scientific community to find out, you know, what is... Um, for someone who's vaccinated or unvaccinated, what does that mean? And how can we help our communities understand that? So each person can make an individual decision about what they want to do. So our, my approach here is to listen. And just like Tanya said, there are a lot of places around our community to get great information. Um, and being able to hear that consistently, I think that's been a challenge of the, the pandemic itself, because yes, things can change and more information comes in and everybody I think wants to make the best decision for themselves. So being able to say here's what um, science shows us, here's what we're experiencing with Omicron, um, yes it moves quickly, very transmissible. Um, recovery is also quicker. So I'm um, being able to understand you know what's going on here, how it affects us is really an ongoing conversation, absolutely, because I don't think this will be the last. We will get into that very shortly as well. A little bit of uh, uh, informed speculation maybe will be in order later on in our conversation here on Perspectives. In case you're just joining us, Emily Pritchard on the research faculty of the FSU College of Medicine is with us along with Tanya Tatum, FAMU's health center director and very much involved in things like contact tracing and the testing program and vaccinations out there at the uh, Bragg Stadium site that has been part of our community's ecosystem on the medical front since the very beginning of the pandemic. Hey, if you miss all or part of a Perspectives program, it is always available online on our WFSU.org website. We try to have the most recent program up as soon as we can after it airs on the radio so you can go back and hear the program, revisit the information as often as you might want. Um, Tanya Tatum, when it comes to the unique facet of Florida A&M University, not only having a wonderful um, student health center there on campus, which uh, is your bailiwick, but also one of the most respected uh, co college uh, pharmacological institutes in the entire country. A lot of folks will trust the person at the local drugstore before they even trust their doctor. Does that give FAMU a, a leg up in getting more good, solid, reliable, accurate information out into the community than otherwise it might? Well, I'd like to think, uh, I, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, we have our College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences and their public, uh, their Institute of Public Health have been um, in the front line <clears throat> of our COVID response. And in fact, um, it was Dr. Cynthia Harris, who is the <clears throat> Associate Vice President um, of Pharmacy and the Institute of Public Health that started the conversations that um, led us to opening up the testing site. Um, so we are, you know, making sure that we're our students are well-informed and educated, and we're hoping that that information is translating to their peers and also into their workplaces. Um, so we're hopeful and a, a lot of our graduates are frontline pharmacists that are out there that, you know, are given the vaccinations and are giving information and education to individuals regarding COVID-19. So uh, we also have a lot of students in our um, allied health services program and our cardiopulmonary science program and in our nursing programs that have been very helpful and very um, involved in our COVID response and COVID education programs. Um, they've helped at our testing site. Um, they've volunteered and have um, done a number of clinical um, 
uh, rotations through various areas. So COVID has been front in line for a number of our health-related programs. When you talk about outreach into underserved communities, of course, that was one of the rationales for establishing the Florida State University College of Medicine, as I recall, Emily Pritchard, back in the day. Does that status give the folks in the College of Medicine a unique opportunity also to make a real difference in some of these outlying communities that do not have perhaps the same availability of not only information, but also of services that you would have in a larger, uh, better equipped community like Tallahassee, let's say? Right. Our students um, spend their first couple of years training here at the Tallahassee campus. Um, and then we have satellite campuses all over the state, um, serving many different rural and underserved areas. So the, the students are, are taking this information out and, and practicing it. Um, our College of Nursing students are also going through clinical rotations. It's very important to make sure that we're training up the next generation, you know, even though we're still day to day dealing with the virus here now. Um, we also have um, I've done quite a few different Masters of Public Health. Our MPH program students um, are doing internships um, with, with my office all across the state, even with different um, local county health departments. Um, and it really, it warms my heart to see how not only have our faculty stepped up um, to, to really help the community here, but our students are also eager to serve. And um, they're sometimes working together on projects with some of the FAMU students that uh, Tanya mentioned. And right now, you know, this is something that I think brings us together and um, rather than apart, or at least it should. Yeah, and Tanya, how do you see that partnership playing out from, from your end there? As Emily said, an opportunity to have kind of a, a, a common bond between the two universities, which in many ways intersect in some pretty special ways. Uh, it's been um, it, it's been very helpful, beneficial, and we're looking forward to even longer lasting relationships. Um, Emily, I actually have a MPH student that's working with us now with our contact tracing. So um, it is um, we have all had to band together to help each other. Um, I know Emily came out and took a look at when we were just getting ready to start the testing site and did a walkthrough because we're like, oh my goodness, do we have everything in place? Have we thought of everything? And and they were starting up the laboratory. Um, and I mean, there was just so much going on. And so we have had to pull on and to count on all of our resources and all of our supporters. And that has been, this has been a community-wide response. And we have different um different um, activities and pieces everywhere. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm on the phone constantly with somebody from either FSU or from Capital Regional or for TMH or some of our other partners with the Department of Health. Um, it has taken all of us and all of our resources and all of our efforts and our staff and, and just the, the motivation to keep us all in this and to keep this going to you know, bring the best for our community to help us through this this critical time. It has been a stretch, I think, for everyone. And Tanya, I'm thinking, again, in terms of the Student Health Center, which just about every college and university has one. It may be a one room stuck off to one side of the student union somewhere, or it may be a standalone facility with some pretty, you know, prodigious uh, equipment and staffing and all that kind of thing. But here you have to be essentially a clinic for the whole community all of a sudden. How were you able to amass the resources to pull that off? And for such a long time, this wasn't a one-off. This has been going on and on and on, as you say, for nearly three years now. Right. Like I said, we started out with partners. Um, the Department of Health and the Division of Emergency Management were absolutely critical um, and helping us, you know, get things started. And they provided a lot of support and resources. Um, we've since, you know, um, been able to pull in additional support. Um, we also started up a um, COVID-19 PCR laboratory. We got some support through a thermal project with Thermo Fisher Scientific and um, the Gates Foundation. We, we've pulled on a lot of resources to really kind of keep supporting what we're doing so that we can provide the best for our students and provide the best for our faculty staff and provide the best for the community. 
And, and Emily Pritchard, same kind of uh, a question, even though you went through a long litany of different things that you were doing at the Florida State University College of Medicine and the uh, response to COVID, but the fact that over a longer term, the, the very um, fact that we are going through a pandemic changes profoundly the the focus and the mission and the day-to-day function of the College of Medicine. Suddenly, this stuff isn't theoretical. It's not literally academic. This is real, and the opportunity for your students to get involved in hands-on uh, medical situations, I would imagine, has been greatly increased because of this. Yes, and I think that we... Um pull them in and allow them to see how how we're working in real time. Um, and be, seeing that um, hands-on response is always a very important part of clinical training. Um, but being able to see that um, coming together with public health, with you know the, the different pieces here, um, the Department of Health has been um, fantastic here in Leon County. Um, you know, many thanks to Claudia Blackburn and her service and um, Sandin Speedling now who is here. And um, it's it's really been, I think, something that we can um, continue to grow and continue to serve together. Um, FSU, when we opened our di- diagnostic laboratory, we couldn't have done it without the help of TMH. Um, and you know that serves all of our hospitalized patients. It serves campus. It serves uh, the general community. And so, you know, being able to say, I recommend Tanya's program all the time. <laughs> and so, when when people say, you know, these these are the things that we want the best for you. Um, and we are here to help serve. And I think that's something that's important to model for our students and also model how do we work together. Um, sometimes in academia, we can get in our silos. And, and really, this is something that affects uh, faculty and students in our community, no matter who you are and no matter where you are. Um, and so there are resources here in our community for you. And we continue to build as things change and we continue to adapt. So I, I feel like the timelines are accelerated here compared to what we're used to. To, right, we're used to talking about public health programs over the span of years. Um, not, you know, things are changing in a matter of weeks. So you get to see it play out and um, get to see, you know, how you can make an impact too. Because the students who come to us for health careers are coming for um, some really wonderful reasons, and getting to see the impact that they make in a short period of time, I think, is very rewarding. Real world response here, and let's talk with you, Tanya Tatum, first. You have a student at Florida A&M University who comes to the health center and they have a really bad case of the sniffles, let's say, and they are feeling a bit fatigued and they have a sore throat. And we've heard this before, uh, exactly what the uh, early symptomatics of Mm -hmm. uh, Omicron might be. What do you say? What do you do? How do you respond to that student? Well, it depends on how they get to us. Um, If they're just a walk-in, we will have our clinicians see them, do some diagnostic testing to see if we can determine (laughs) the cause of those symptoms. Um, And then we will provide, you know, a regular course of treatment. Typically, if it's a phone call, we'll ask them, have they been tested for COVID-19? I think one of the things that... um, the messages I've really worked hard to try to get to students is when you start to have symptoms, even though you may usually get allergies or, you know, some, some of us have some routine things that, that come up, but I said, no matter what, if you start to feel like you're having symptoms, just go get tested. And if you're symptomatic, we can also do a rapid COVID and flu test. And, um, let's rule that out first. Okay. And then we can see where, what we need to do. And so we've really tried to get students to kind of look at that and utilize this resource that's right here on their campus. Um, Because one of the things we really try hard to is to, to limit transmission as much as possible. And, and that's always a challenge in a communal setting, (laughs) but um, we really do try to get them to, to test first. And then, you know, we will treat appropriately. I would imagine it's a bit more of a challenge. I saw the CDC's uh, directive uh, from a couple of weeks ago indicating that the most transmissible time frame for 
Omicron might be in the two to three days before an individual becomes symptomatic. So they've already had all these interactions with other people. They may have spread far and wide, and then they start feeling peaked, and they come to you. But essentially, the damage has already been done, kind of, right? Well, it started already. However, um, they're not through. They're not through that infectious period. So that's when um, the work that Emily's been doing has been so fantastic. Um, and that's when our contact tracing teams come in to play. Um, we identify if they test positive for COVID. Um, we identify other individuals that they may have been in close contact with. And we start and we move and make sure that individuals know what their next steps should be. Emily Pritchard, that sounds like an almost impossible task. We maybe recall what we were like as social animals back in a college or university setting, and (laughs) our little list of friends was maybe longer than both arms put together. How do you do contact tracing when these young people are out and about and back and forth and all over the place? Um, Well, it begins with uh, by picking up the phone. Um, and we talk with them, you know, where have you been and what have you done? And um, we, you know, the infectious period is not over quite a bit of spread may have already occurred. Um, but we also try to look at what the two things that the CDC looks for is proximity and duration. Um, and so we, we do know that the Omicron variant is very transmissible. And, um, you know, we based on previous variants, we've, we've learned a lot about how this spreads. So we're really looking, are you standing within six feet of someone? And was that more than 15 minutes really over the course of a day? Um, So it could be five minutes here, five minutes there. We know these exposures add up. And, um, you know, when there's certain types of mixing, um, maybe a house party, there are some things that can be hard to pin down, right? But there is a lot that we can do um, and the structure within our classrooms really, really helps us. And that's why um, even though you might find out that you're positive partway through your infectious period, we can prevent further exposures by helping you know when to stay in when it's safe to come back. And that's also going to protect your average shopper going down the grocery aisle. Um, So those are the things we um, here at our office, we work very closely with the Department of Health. um, And we work with those who might have been exposed off campus as well. Um, So they will get a confidential notice that they've been exposed um, if it was FSU involved or vice versa. So we, we work very, very closely together with our partners. And um, we're doing all we can, and we couldn't do it without the cooperation of the people who are testing um, and talking with us, even when they're not feeling well. So again, that's why we're all part of the solution here. And um, Omicron does find faster recoveries in a lot of cases, which is all the more important to answer the phone the first time. So we don't have to chase you down. (laughs) That's always a good idea. And folks, if you're listening to Perspectives right now, number one, we thank you very much for that. We are talking to Emily Pritchard with the College of Medicine at Florida State University and the director of the uh, Student Health Center at Florida A&M University, Tanya Tatum. And since this is a pre-recorded program, uh, we Wish we could take your call, but we can't. We hope to return to our live in-studio interactive format in a very, very short space of time, particularly if we can get the Omicron variant back behind us. At the outset here, folks, we were talking about some of the the myths, the mythologies that are out there concerning COVID. One thing I heard the other day, Tanya, let me let you respond to this here. A a young man of my acquaintance said, well, I had the original, it was almost a badge of honor. It was strange. I had the original variant back in the day. You know, it sounded like 20 years ago. And, And I got through it, and now I'm immune. I never have to worry about it again. And I said, um, I don't know. I, I would check the CDC website. They may have a different take on that. What are you telling the folks who come in and say, hey, I had Rona. I'm good to go. I don't need vaccine. I don't need anything. I'm fine. Well, I, I, I do share with them that I'm glad they came through that first course of the of, uh, COVID-19 with flying colors, but that's not a guarantee that you won't get it again. Um, It just isn't. With the difference in the variants that are coming through, I mean, we we had the first iteration of uh, SARS-CoV-2 that came through 
in the very beginning. And soon we were overtaken by the European variant, which is the alpha variant. And then we've got the Delta variant and now we're on Omicron and we don't know what's three or four months down the road. And the fact of the matter is, is because it keeps changing because we have more variants that come up. Um, there's not a guarantee that once you've had it, you're good. Um, we know that immunity wanes over time and that um, it's important to you know, stay vaccinated and that certainly boosts your immunity, your immune response so that even if you've had COVID-19 once that having that vaccination helps prevent you from um, further disease later down the line. But um, I, I don't think we can afford to take too many chances. Um, and so I always encourage people to take whatever preventive measures that are out there um, because we really don't know what that next one's gonna look like. Emily Pritchard, what are you hearing and, and how do you respond when people come with information or stories or anecdotes that you know just something isn't right there? And, and what do you tell them? Well, the, I, I echo Tanya, she's spot on. You know, we, we do know that um, natural immunity can come from your recovery from a COVID-19 infection. Um, and we also know that you can be reinfected. Um, so just vaccine immunity also uh, wanes over time and a booster can help with both of those um, to increase your immune response. It does provide a significant level of added protection um, there was actually just a CDC publication that came out last week that showed how much of a difference this really can make. So, you know, keep in mind that we are this, there's never a, a black and white time that we are continually, your, your body is responding. Um, and if it has not seen COVID for a while uh, and you haven't been sick, you know, that doesn't mean your immunity is going to stay the same forever. Um, so we do encourage boosters um, for everyone who's eligible. Right now, those who've had Pfizer or Moderna, are eligible after five months. So those boosters are available at FSU. They're available throughout our community. It's really easy to go to CVS, Walgreens, Publix, and, and get that quick shot. Um, and that's gonna make a big difference. Um, you know, We do see some vaccinated people infected with the Omicron variant, but we're also seeing much, much milder cases because of that. So we know the vaccine is doing its job. Um, and I'm very thankful that our community is more protected right now but it's important for them to know what is protecting them and what isn't protecting them as much. Researchers and epidemiologists like, uh, you know, our local person, Stephanie Colter with the uh, Florida Department of Health in Leon County and others are constantly looking ahead or trying to look ahead. Again, this is a very cloudy crystal ball because, as you said, Tanya Tatum, this is a very changeable and fluid situation when it comes to how these variants are morphing and evolving. And for those who doubt evolution, just look what's going on with our viruses. It's taking place right before our eyes. What the biggest fear, of course, is that you'll have something as transmissible as Omicron, but has a 50% mortality rate. But I, I haven't read any researchers lately that seem to be prognosticating that. What are, are you hearing, again, from the, the best of the science as to how possibly this whole scenario may play out over time? Um, well, because we still have a significant number of... Uh, the sorry, a significant number of the population still unvaccinated. Um, that leaves lots of room, uh, lots of bodies for COVID-19 to spread. And the more it spreads, the more opportunities it has to change and mutate. Um, there are a number of other variants that are out there that are they're looking at right now the subvariant of Omicron, Omicron B2A or whatever it is. Um, there's just a number of things that are out there. Nothing is of interest or of concern yet, although they do have a number of variants of interest that they're looking at. So um, it's not done. It's, it's not over. Um, we haven't beaten this yet. And um, we just have to keep, you know, fighting the good fight, I think, and trying to get people vaccinated because we want to reduce 
overall numbers of infection. And that's the way we're going to help minimize the continued um, changes and mutations in, in the virus. So, Emily Pritchard, is that kind of best case scenario similar to standard old ordinary influenza that will have little changes year to year, but people will get an appropriate vaccination and generally be okay and will just have to continue living with this thing? Um, I think we hope that's what's going to happen. Absolutely. And um, I heard a a wonderful talk by an evolutionary biologist um, about how, you know, it behooves the virus to stay infectious and to stay mild, right? So that's there are these drivers that if it can spread more, um, you know, the virus needs a host. And as Tanya said, we have a lot of unvaccinated, we have a lot of hosts because, uh, you know, even vaccination, you know, that that wanes. So we do have a lot of opportunities for it to continue to mutate. And um, there is not a clear reason for it to become more lethal, right? Um, and because if it did, it wouldn't spread so fast. So um, right now, it's important that we make sure that people are aware of how to protect themselves so that if they do, there is going to, there's a smaller percentage that do get fairly ill. We want to be sure that we have the hospital resources, the clinic resources um, to be able to serve them. So to me, that's, um, we know what they can do to protect themselves right now. Um, and if anything, we've learned that COVID can, can, can continually surprise us, right? <laughs> um, and so we'll continue to adapt. And, um, you know, we've got, um, increased services through University Health Services here at FSU, lots of appointments, we've got lots of vaccine appointments, and we continue to make testing available um, because as each one of us can do our part in minimizing the spread in our community, that helps protect the vulnerable people who um, you know, are not otherwise able to protect themselves. So it's certainly my hope that this doesn't get worse, but I do think it's gonna be a fact of life for a long time to come. For a I don't even know if we want to call it a being. It is just a string of uh, a genetic material that has absolutely no intelligence, but it sure seems to act in a very intelligent fashion, which is still so strange to me. And Tanya Tatum, it may be a little bit smarter than many of the people that it's trying to infect because you're still getting that pushback from so many people that for whatever reason just are averse to protecting themselves, but more importantly, to protect all the people around them from from infection. And even when you hear about hospitals, uh, luckily, both Tallahassee Memorial and Capital Regional are not anywhere close to full capacity yet, but I know they're still under a strain taking COVID patients in their emergency rooms and their special wards that have this. So, um, yeah, you, you, you still have to be an educator as well as a care provider when it comes to this thing. Yes, and that, that is certainly something and I, something I share with my staff a lot that um, when we're educators first <laughs> and um, then the rest of our training and our expertise comes into play. And this has been a... Um, an ongoing theme for us um, because one, we have never really had to, in our lifetimes, had to deal with an active pandemic. We've had a few brushes here and there, but nothing like this. And so it's new territory for everybody. And and I can't expect that everybody is going to meekly follow all the instructions if <laughs> they're not. Um, so it's that back and forth conversations and being willing to, as Emily mentioned earlier, meet people where they are and to provide that extra information and um, clarify some of the misconceptions sometimes and and above all, always provide that support and empathy and um, we'll get through this. Yeah, well, a question here from uh, from Kim in, uh, in, in background. Is there a lot of pushback from student populations and does it follow the same overall pattern that we kind of see in the general population? A New York Times article today uh, posited that young people are concerned about the virus and perhaps more inclined to follow the CDC guidelines and protect themselves than, uh, than most folks. Is Do you see that, Tanya? I'm not sure I'd go that far. 
Our students are wonderful, um, but they have concerns and questions just like everybody else in the general population. So I think they kind of mirror what we see, at least from what I've seen, they mirror what we see in the larger in the larger community. Um, but I'm always open and we have lots of <clears throat> times to interact. I meet with the students that are doing different articles for our newspaper and our, our campus magazines. I meet with students in our various um, student organizations. We have a weekly uh, Zoom call where people can call in and just ask any questions they want. Um, we try to make sure that we're accessible and available and that we're given good information. Um, and I think everybody on campus probably has my cell phone number and can call and say, hey, Ms. Tatum, what do you think? Um, so <laughs> we just try to answer the questions and steer people in the right direction. Yes, we were cramming for an exam here at 3.30 in the morning. We thought we'd call Miss Tatum and see what she did. <laughs> I haven't gotten any 3.30 a.m. calls, but 6.30 a.m. calls, yes. <laughs> yeah. Emily Pritchard, let me run Kim's question by you, too, again. And, and that also, I guess, kind of uh, ties in with the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the invulnerability of young people who kind of feel that, you know, stuff isn't going to happen to them anyway, just again, normal human reaction. But do you see more awareness um, and perhaps a little bit more conscientiousness on the part of, uh, of students that you have interaction with and uh, uh, maybe the general population? Well, I think that Student trends um, in the state of Florida and across the country, um, you know, we have our highest vaccinated rates in the older populations, and that becomes less and less the younger you are. And so I do think at this point in time, younger populations are realizing um, that there's they there is a certain vulnerability there, and that this um, we've a lot of this health education is is sinking in. We don't need to make it more than it is, but we also need to state the facts clearly. Um, and so being able to, to do what's necessary, I, I talk to a lot of students that are doing the right thing and um, wanting to do the right thing. And I think that also is indicative of the greater population, right? When we have the right information in our hands, we can make an informed decision. So, um, you know, on our campus, we don't mandate masks and we don't mandate vaccines. And those things are different than across the country. Um, but we emphasize the importance of personal choice and being able to make an informed one and that this could affect others. Um, and it could affect others in your classroom and others in your community. Um, and here are the ways and acknowledge that there are you know, risks associated with different things. And I, I really like that the, the students can take a thoughtful approach to that. Um, I don't see students being throwaway, um, rude or uncaring about it. Um, and I also think that as we see more and more the, the virus affecting unvaccinated populations, that's increased incentive for our students to be vaccinated. And we continue to offer those and we continue to encourage it. Well, folks, we uh, have had a wonderful discussion today, and I can't tell you again how much I appreciate you taking the time on all this. I wanted to give everyone just a couple of minutes apiece for any final thoughts that you might have, some topics that we haven't touched on, anything else that you would like to, to bring to the table before we say goodbye. Tanya Tatum over at the Florida A&M University Student Health Center, your turn first. Well, I, I would like to just add on to the, the last little bit and that we've had our students really engaged in uh, our COVID response. And so they've not only helped us frontline, but also they're engaged in reaching out to other students about getting tested and getting vaccinated. And I think that's been a big, um, a big help and, and they're their best ambassadors, you know, so we really appreciate that. But um, I think the only other thing is just to really thank everybody. Um, Tallahassee has really come together, has really um, done everything it can possibly do to address the issue of COVID-19. And we've been there to support each other. Um, and so we're thankful for everybody's support and everybody's help. Thanks so much, Tanya. We appreciate that. Emily Pritchard, same for you, ma'am, please. Well, I would echo a lot of thanks um, to those across campus. Um, you know, Dr. Van Dermey, at, also at the FSU College of Medicine and our primary care clinic, um, our colleagues who help run the testing center and our rapid response lab with TMH and Dr. Jonathan Dennis over there. Um, these people are 
in, day in, day out, serving our community. Um, Amy Magnuson and uh, Chris Delisle over at University Health Services. Um, and I, there are too many to name at the Department of Health who have served day in, day out, and um, to be there for people. And so it really, it warms my heart that we have a community that can come together like this. Um, and Tanya, you're one of them too, you know that. So, you know, being able to to say, hey, we are, um, there is, I think, a level of fatigue present, and um, we see you, and we hear you, and we're still here trying to do the right thing, and um, we hope that you'll continue in that as well. Again, folks, thank you so much for the latest and greatest information available, and to the massive response that you folks have been a part of here in our community, not just for the campus community, but the community as a whole. And uh, as both of you indicated, this is a role that is likely to continue for at least the foreseeable future. And so I wish both of you and all of your colleagues and uh, both of our great institutions of higher learning here in Tallahassee, great health, great success. And we'll check back with you periodically to see just how this is playing out as we go forward. This is not a one-off as we all know. And, uh, Thankfully, we have folks like you to help us uh, through some really, really trying times. So Emily Pritchard on the research faculty at the FSU College of Medicine and Tanya Tatum, FAMU's Health Center Director. And as uh, someone uh, called you, Tanya, um, the Lord High Head Honchoette of everything COVID at FAMU. Thank you so much for being part of this very special edition of Perspectives produced by WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee. Thanks going out to Taylor Cox and Evan Rossi, Paul Dam, Amy Diaz de Villegas, Tricia Moynihan, and Lydell Rawls, among a host of others. Our director of content, Kim Kelling, is executive producer, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Amidst all this year's conflicts and controversies at the Florida Capitol, there are still folks who are very focused on the more essential nuts and bolts of public policy. That includes looking out for the kids of our state who find themselves often in dire, sometimes even deadly circumstances. We're going to talk with some incredible children's advocates about that and more next week on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care. <laughs>